Hosea 4, verses 1 to 3. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land mourns, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the air, and the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea are dying. And the second reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Claire. And uh, good evening, everyone. Whoops, um, don't need that to happen. I'm going to pray before I begin. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your care of creation and your love for it. And we pray that you will speak into every heart here as you alone know how to and you know the need of each of us tonight with regard to this subject. Please may the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord. Amen. Well, um, this is a one-point sermon. Um, and the point is creation, this is the third in our series on creation, there'll be one more, Charlie preached uh, two weeks ago, Simon preached last Sunday night, and then Mark will be preaching next uh, Sunday because we want to carry this burden into the heart of the church. And my one point is that creation is vital to our understanding of the gospel. That's it. Creation is vital to our understanding of the gospel. If you want three points, because you're a three-point church, they are these. God loves the world, God loves humankind, and God loves justice. And they're all in here somewhere. I'm a bit worried because I haven't got any jokes. And we were appreciating being funny earlier on and so on. But you never know, do you? Many, many years ago, probably over 20 years ago, I stood at the entrance of the Serengeti Game Reserve in Tanzania at dawn, and I experienced one of those moments that it's really hard to put words around. You could call it an epiphany. 
It was undiluted joy. My heart was absolutely flooded with hope. Hope about everything, everything in my life, everything that I knew about. I really felt at one with God. I truly felt myself being filled again with his spirit. I felt it was a thin place between heaven and earth. The beauty felt absolutely overpowering, overwhelming, dazzling, wonderful. Surely the Lord is in this place, I felt. I've had other moments before and since then, but they're rare enough for me to really register them and revel in them when they happen. Most recently, it was cycling along the towpath here in Oxford on a very sun-filled Saturday morning, and I felt those things again. Tracy Emin, the artist, famously said, I felt you, and I knew you loved me. And that's how I feel on these occasions, even though I know that God, in my head, that God loves me all the time. I think there are very few people who are completely impervious to such spiritual apprehensions, even those who are broken, such moments in the creation. In his sermon two weeks ago, Charlie referred to God's treatment, medicine, if you like, for Job's despair, which at the end of the book of Job was to show him the beauties of creation at some length. Now, many of us would probably here agree with me and testify to the power of creation or nature to calm us, refresh us, inspire us, revive us, encourage us. Now, this might be a joke. I am going to use this for the first time. Can you put it on? <laughs> Let's hope not. I want to show you five beautiful pictures. That is in Wales. I'm sorry they're not bigger. We need a huge screen. That is in Macedonia. Obviously, we can't jump into the screen, but I'm sure you're aware of what I'm showing you. That is in Switzerland. That is in South Africa. That is here in Oxford in our botanical gardens. And that is in Uganda. We're going to leave that there for a moment. We know, as Romans 8 tells us, that creation is groaning, even though we see these beautiful sights. Or to put it another way, we are in an environmental crisis. We have diminishing natural resources. We are burning all our fossil fuels. We are seeing global warming. Desertification is happening, and all these things are taking their toll. So instead of seeing beautiful sights like those, what we are seeing as the planet is raped and robbed are things like this. I don't know where these are. This week, in fact, yesterday, in the newspaper, there was an article that said, Arctic ice has shrunk by one million square miles. And a professor of climate science at the University College in London said, an increasingly ice-free Arctic is a geopolitical game-changer, with the Arctic nations jostling for advantage. The economic and ecological consequences of new trade routes opening up have yet to unfold. That is a picture of that. That is flooding, and those people will be poor. More signs of destitution and rubbish. I'll be saying a bit more about that later on. And their desert, desert growing very fast across the world. But 
so there are, there are reasons to be downcast when we see those sorts of things. But the Romans 8 tells us, uh, text tells us there is really great hope. And in this passage in Romans 8 that we heard read, Paul is working with ideas that any Jew would have recognized and understood because he's talking about the present age and the glory that will be disclosed. And Jewish thought divided time into two sections, this present age and the age to come. And the present age was wholly bad, subject to sin and death and decay. But out of the return of Jesus, one day would come a new world and the age to come. And the renovation of the world was one of the great Jewish themes and thoughts. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, writes Isaiah in chapter 65, without explanation. But the dream of a renovated world was dear to the Jews, and there are lots of intertestamental writings with very exotic names like the Apocalypse of Baruch and the Sibylline Oracles that uh, talk about this at much, much greater length. If we come back to Romans 8, here Paul is endowing creation with consciousness. He thinks of nature longing for the day when sin's dominion would be broken and death and decay would be gone and God's glory would come. And with very imaginative insight, he says that the state of nature is even worse than the state of men. Men had sinned deliberately, but nature was subjected involuntarily to the effects of that sin. We read in Genesis chapter 3, Cursed is the ground because of you, says God to Adam. So here in Romans, Paul is seeing nature waiting for liberation from the death and decay that man's sin has brought into the world. And so we see that the sufferings and the glory of nature and humanity are integrally related to each other. That's probably my, the heart of my burden, that they're both connected. Both are groaning and suffering now. Both will be set free, humankind and the creation, eventually. One of the reasons that the environment is difficult, or even actually sometimes annoying to us, is that at Christi as Christians, we think of ourselves as being rather separate from it. Wendell Berry, whom Simon quoted last week, uh, quoted uh, um, some of his poem, a poem of his, uh, but he was also an environmental activist, a cultural critic, an academic, and a farmer. And in a conversation called Creation Care in the Great Economy, he said this, the problem with the word environment is that it means surroundings. The better word would be ecosphere, because the life support system depends on non-living as well as living things. Or we could call it the world, or the local eco ecosystem, or we could call it the local neighborhood, including its human and non-human inhabitants. But you can't draw a line, he says, between an organism and its environment for the reason that organisms don't just live in their environment, the environment also lives in them. They mutually participate in the community of microorganisms, but organisms also breathe, eat, excrete, and so on, so there's no division. You can kill an organism, but unless you take its body out of the eco ecosystem, there will still be participation because the ecosystem will claim the body and recycle it. So the idea of environment as we're using it is a false idea. And he ends up this little point by saying, you have to wonder where we think we are when we suddenly decide that we will apply our help to the environment. Where are we when we make that decision? 
And if we are going to understand our relationship with the creation, we have to understand that we ourselves are part of it, part of our surroundings. Eugene Peterson wrote this, the Latin words humus, meaning soil or earth, and homo, human being, have a common derivation from which we also get our word humble. This is the genesis origin of who we are, dust. Dust that the Lord God used to make us as a human being. If we cultivate a lively sense of our origin and nurture a sense of continuity with it, who knows, we might also acquire humility. Coming back to Romans 8, we read in verse 19 of the eager expectation uh, for which the Greek is, this might be a joke too, apokaradokia, not apokaraoke, but apokaradokia. And I've got uh, the comments of two um, commentators on this verse, which I find quite amusing because they reflect their, their characters so well. Firstly, John Stott, who says what this means, eager expectation, is to wait with the head raised and the eye fixed on the point of the horizon from which the expected object is to come. That's John Stott. Barclay says that it means eagerly searching the distance for the first signs of the dawn break of glory. He's in a much more poetic frame of mind. But what this is telling us, that this is about hope for our creation, not resignation to its destruction. Well, the environmental movement has often been accused of being the bearer of bad news, prophesying doom for mankind. And without the hope offered by the Christian perspective of a renovated or renewed creation, for the word translated new means renewed, what else should we expect? I think many of you here know that we are friends of Arosha, the Christian conservation organization that was just this month represented at the World Conservation Congress in Honolulu. I say the because it is currently the only Christian organization among the many which are desperately concerned for the welfare of our planet. And other subjects that we deal with, like war and poverty, all the NGOs are absolutely full of Christians. This is really uh, behind all other forms of help that Christians are motivated to give uh, to our world around us. A Russia's founder, Peter Harris, was one of the panel speakers, um, and he was thus given the privilege at this meeting of injecting the message of hope, which is our gospel of Jesus Christ, into this huge, really almost entirely secular gathering. He began by acknowledging that there are many misapprehensions about Christianity because of what he calls, or what is called out there, the toxic gospel. Imagine a gospel genetically modified by the DNA of consumerism. And uh, the people out there liked that phrase. Consumerism is a god of today, and tragically, it is worshipped in the Christian church through the message that we sometimes give that the more stuff we have, the happier we will be. And there are lots of powerful vo voices in the church worldwide that preach this message, not solely in the Pentecostal streams. And it really is a religious belief with no empirical proof to substantiate its claim because we all know that things don't make us happy. We all know that what makes us happy is good relationships, loving relationships. I want to play you just two minutes of uh, Peter Harris's talk that he was able to give, uh, talking about what is our theology. A article called Armageddon Extinction, 
and explain what Christian theology is and isn't. First of all, it's, it's just a quick run through. I do read biblical Hebrew, so trust me, there's some scholarship behind this. Um, first of all, we understand everything is not around us. Everything is the handiwork of a loving God. And Psalm 24 and verse 1 says that the earth, Haaretz, is the Lord's. So it's not ours. It's not natural resources. It's not even environment. We have difficulty living with this language because it puts the human story right in the middle of things. For the Christian, it is Christ at the heart of his creation. And it's this wonderful gift to us, of course, ecosystem services. But its meaning is to worship God. It is sacred, it is holy, because it's God's handiwork. So there's a huge conservation ethic right there. Secondly, what's wrong with it? 3,000 years before the words marine crisis were ever heard, the prophet Hosea wrote that it was the broken relationship with God which resulted in lying, murder, stealing, those human abuses that Sally mentioned. And then Hosea goes on to say, therefore, the land mourns. And the fish of the sea and the birds of the air are dying. Achim Steine, your former director general, said to me at the World Conservation Congress in Bangkok in 2004, what was difficult for him to say, which is that essentially, it's not, as you were saying, a technical problem that we have. We have a human problem in the Anthropocene. And Achim said, it's changing people that is at the heart of our task. And what is transformative? So, uh, what transforms people, I want to stop there, is what they believe and what they value. Now, as Christians, we believe that there's something fundamentally broken about us, and that is our relationship with God until we come into relationship with him. And the devastation of our human and social relationships is inevitably going to lead to the devastation of our ecological relationships. Gus Speth, who's a leading US environmental lawyer and advocate, uh, said in 2013, he said this, I used to think that the top global environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that with 30 years of good science, we could address these problems, but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a spiritual and cultural transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. You know, Tim was talking to us a few minutes ago about his work in Central Africa. And some of what he is doing out there is the fruit of this selfishness, greed. Not him, but he's dealing with the, the fallout, if you like, the fruit of this greed and selfishness and apathy um, that is so widespread uh, over the earth. And I'm going to just give you an example of what we're talking about, that we can put our head in the sand about these things, but we need to be thinking about them. Here is an example of what Gus Speth was talking about. In a chilling documentary uh, called Manufactured Landscapes, uh, it records slag heaps, e-waste dumps, and factories all staggering in their scope, and this is in a remote Chinese province. What we see in this documentary is children and women are seen assembling and deassembling toxic electronic equipment without the benefit of safety gear, as simple as gloves or protective eyewear. 
Edward Brown, in his book, Our Father's World, recounts the implications of corporate bottom lines, which encourage multinationals to locate their factories in countries with little or no environmental regulations. Good for consumers upwind in the more developed countries that receive cheap goods, but disastrous in terms of the toxic pollution for those living near the factories. For example, in 2005, a single toxic spill into the Songhua River in China involved over 100 tons of benzene, an industrial solvent, and carcinogen. It has been said that the environmental message is like the Christian message, but without hope. And what I'm trying to talk about tonight is the hope that as Christians we carry, but if we're going to put that hope out there about our environment, we've got to understand it a little bit. And I hope you're beginning to see, as we explore our relationship with the creation through this series, and through no doubt many, many discussions that will take place and have taken place, I hope that you're beginning to see how very evangelistic our understanding becomes. And it also is really critical that we recognize that the church recognize and address our own unconscious bias towards consumerism and materialism. Let's not throw stones at far-off African Pentecostals who've been caught up in the prosperity or toxic gospel, because the message of prosperity has pretty much always originated in the West, where we've always had plenty before we even begin in world terms. So the Christian understanding of hope is that God loves his creation and is committed to it. The gospel message itself begins with creation and ends with the new or the renewed creation. It does not begin with people in trouble or end with people. And so what can we draw out of this? We're going to have to say we cannot operate in an us and a them mode. Business is not bad and green initiatives good. All of us are created. We cannot have a spirituality of them and us. Paul, when he preached in Athens to a context just as diverse as the Hawaii Congress, says, and we know this well, we are his offspring. He himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. That's in Acts 17. The human race could turn things around for the planet, but only together and only with hope. And that's why creation care is a lifestyle that issues from values and beliefs. It's not a sort of addendum to church life, church community life about recycling, which we did really badly at lunchtime today, caricatured by the eco-freak, you know, the tree hugger who says, I eat more muesli than you, my sandals are more threadbare than yours, etc. It is, in fact, central to the gospel mandate because in Genesis 1 and 2, God instructs Adam and Eve to organize and care for the creation. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And his message, God's message in Romans, is full of hope too. The groaning creation is going to be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now I think that the record of the church around the creation and environmental issues has been depressing because we have so often tended to make the gospel anthropocentric. John 3.16, for example, while revealing that salvation comes to humankind from believing in Jesus, how majestic and enthrallingly simple, why do we make it so complicated? But that verse says, 
God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It does not say God so loved humankind that he gave his son. And the implication here is again that there's this integral link between man's response to God and the state of creation or nature. And it is all over the Bible. Once you start looking, I'm going to give you a few examples from Isaiah uh, chapter 32, 3 and 4, just very short. Uh, Chapter 32, when the Spirit is poured from on high and the desert becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field seems like a forest, justice will dwell in the desert, and righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. Next one, the treaty is broken. This is all part of a huge picture. But I want to pick these things out because it demonstrates this connection between us and our surroundings. The treaty is broken, its witnesses are despised, no one is respected, the land mourns and wastes away. That's like the Hosea passage. Isaiah 34, come near you nations and listen. Pay attention you peoples, let the earth hear and all that is in it. And so on and so forth. Isaiah 35, a very famous chapter for us all. Then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool and the thirsty ground bubbling springs. Yes, there is a spiritual application of that, but there's also a practical, real, physical one. Another example of our propensity to be egocentric as mankind is in the calming of the storm that Jesus calms the storm. We read about that in in Matthew chapter 8 and in Mark and in Luke. And we nearly always hear it exposited as an example of how Jesus rescues us from our internal storms. We're on Lake Galilee and there's this terrible storm and we're terrified and Jesus says, be calm. And it's an exhortation not to lose our peace when things are difficult. And that is true, but in fact, these verses demonstrate Jesus' lordship over the whole of creation. And so verse 27 of Matthew chapter 8 says, The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And this event is foreshadowed, actually, in Psalm 107, where there's a very similar passage of people going out in ships, a terrible storm happens, and they lose their courage in their peril, and they reel and stagger like drunken men, and they're at their wit's end, and they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, And then what does he do? He stills the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. So there's this very strong connection between what's happening to us and our whole environment and surroundings. And I want to say that not all is doom and gloom. In the same 30 years that we have lost half of vertebrate life on this earth, there has been an extraordinary change in the Christian church even if there's a way to go. And I do want to pay tribute to the work of Arosha at this point because it has been and certainly still is a key player in this change. But another really powerful and influential voice is that of Pope Francis, expressed on this very subject in his majestic and moving encyclical letter called Laudato Si, Care for Our Common Home, which he delivered at St. Peter's in Rome uh, in Pentecost last year. Laudato Si, which means praise be to you, and it comes from a canticle written by St. Francis 
of Assisi, entitled Laudato Si, Mi Signore. Um, and it, I do, I really urge you to read uh, that encyclical. It is majestic. It's very long. It'll take you a bit of time, and it's got some rather funny little Catholic bits in that you won't like. But you don't need to worry about that because the vast bulk of it is absolute genius. Um, it's not only, though, these voices, you know, it's not other people who are going to do the work because, of course, I'm bringing this home to us. What about us? I believe that because we are part of creation ourselves, that we have an instinctive longing for nature. And we can see all sorts of evidence of that if we just take a look. Just to give you three examples, Care for the Family organizes holidays for family, families in pain or trouble, seaside holidays for children. We have a friend who uh, founded a trust enabling children from poor inner-city schools also to go on seaside holidays, things they would never be able to do so that they could actually get into the creation, as it were. And ACT, our ACT friends here, take their members sometimes on holiday to the sea, and they go on a retreat sometimes uh, to an area called the Malvern Hills, which is a very beautiful part of our country and that speaks of God. So the data does not make us hopeful, but what makes us hopeful is that God cares. He really loves his creation. Despite all that, we, it is true that we are in an environmental crisis. And for many people, although there are good things happening, the longing for nature has been silenced or suppressed, often by the pressure of poverty. I'm sure the people among whom Tim is working in Central Africa, probably are not great fans of the creation because their, their inner beings have been crushed, if you like. And we do know that it's the poor who are most affected by the plundering of the planet. But there are other things. The gods of materialism and consumerism are also responsible for the atrophy of many, many thousands of souls. We throw things away, don't we? But have you ever asked, where is away? And tragically, away is plastic patches in our oceans called gyres, which are the size of Texas, or in some estimates, even the size of the US. We don't actually need to exaggerate the size in order to make the point, because even a patch the size of St. Aldate's would be an absolute tragedy. And that is the picture of those gyres in our oceans. And in the white circles, you have got enormous, vast swathes of just uh, rubbish. Away is a place that is damaging God's very beautiful creation. But we love and care for his creation. Why do we? Because out of worship for him. We're not going to do that because we think we can save the world. We need to love it because we are just there. We don't see nature and her resources as disposable capital that we can just spend till it runs out but rather as something in which we live and move and have our being, something we love. In the same way, pastorally, we might sit at the bedside of a dying person. We can't do anything. We can't stop the person dying, but we're there because we love and because we know and worship God, who is love. Our presence is incarnational. Care of the dying actually doesn't make economic sense but it makes absolute sense on every other level because it springs from a relational foundation. Loving care is intrinsically valuable. We don't need a reason to do it. 
And in the same way, nature, creation, matters because it's intrinsically valuable. And the Bible proclaims this loud and clear throughout its pages. For example, Psalm 104 is one of the earliest hymns, uh, very beautiful hymns, to biodiversity. It's also true about our environment that if we don't have it, we won't survive, but that is not why it matters. It matters because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, Psalm 24, and in wisdom you made them all, your wonderful works, Psalm 104. Now, thousands of people in the world do actually care about creation. At the Hawaii Congress, there were 9,000 people from 160 different countries. But not many yet, not enough yet, are Christians to our shame. So as I come into land now, I really hope that we might be seeing from these few thoughts and from the other sermons in the series how this issue is not only central to the gospel and the creation mandate in Genesis, but that it's also powerfully evangelistic. If we humbly recognize that all humans are made in the image of God, whether or not they recognize or accept it. We have an instinct to help, to save, to rescue deep within our psyche. And of course we do, because we're made in the image of God. I've just uh, completed in the last few months uh, a training with CRUISE, which is the national, very secular organization, uh, bereavement counseling organization. And I had a lovely time with all these lovely people. I don't think any of the other people who trained with me, I'm not sure, I don't want to be too categorical about this, but I don't think any of them would have described themselves as a Christian. And I asked myself, why were they doing this? And I'm using this as an illustration because the reason they, they want to do it is because they have this instinct to help. They want to be there for people uh, who lose others. It's a totally volunteering outfit, so there's no money involved at all. Um, but that just illustrates to me that really we are, we're hardwired to help and bless others in our lives. 